scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6. As we finish 1 Timothy this morning, reading verses 20 and 21. Hear now the word of God. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your word is full of rich food and of reminders of the importance of doing our own part to make use of the benefits of your grace. You call us to more than passivity. You call us to act and you call us to follow you. Would you equip us to do that, Lord, by your spirit, ministering through your word today? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to the end of Paul's first letter to Timothy, Paul is has one more word to Timothy, and it's a word of encouragement, and at the same time, it's a word of warning. On on the one hand, it's an encouragement because he tells Timothy to do this thing that's so important. He says it's the work of guarding, the work of guarding. As I was thinking about guarding something, I, I sort of went down an online rabbit hole. There are some very secure places on planet Earth, uh, places I didn't know about until I decided to Google them. Um, the cliche, of course, is Fort Knox. If you ever want to compare something secure, just refer to Fort Knox, which apparently is covered in 10 feet of solid granite and doors with doors that weigh two, 22 tons. Um, there are other places where people keep things precious to them. There's a place in Pennsylvania called Iron Mountain. I don't know if you've ever heard of Iron Mountain or if you've ever, ever had a reason to know about Iron Mountain, but apparently it's one of the most secure places on Earth. It's built in a series of... Uh, old iron mines over 200 feet into the earth's surface and apparently this place is really good for the preservation of old documents so they have original photographs of Lincoln giving the Gettysburg address and they keep it in this uh, in this place along with a bunch of other priceless documents and files uh, when you start searching for what sort of priceless files nobody wants to tell you so you know you just kind of have to guess uh, I guess they don't even like anyone knowing there are pictures of Lincoln in that building so are inside those mines. But it's a very secure location. And then I, I thought about this place and I thought, what do you put in a place like this? Like, like, let's say Adam went to their website and you can go to their website and you can get quotes on storing things and having them guard it. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, what do I own <laughs> that is so precious to me that I would like it to be on the other side of the country, 200 feet underground, so that no one could ever get to it. Um, why would I own it if I couldn't even use it? You know. So uh, here's a spoiler. As I was thinking through that, I was thinking, what do I? What would I actually put in there? And the answer is, in terms of physical things, the things that that I care that much about is so short. It's basically my family, right? In terms of your worldly things, that's that's about it. Um, I mean, I don't own any photos of Lincoln, so. You know, but, but when we're talking about guarding something, right, we're talking about something that we will do what it takes to protect it. 
right? We're talking about something we're willing to die for. What are you willing to guard with your life? What are you willing to lay your life down for? And, and Paul signs off this letter to Timothy saying, I know something that is worth giving your life for. I know something that is worth guarding with your life. It is worth sacrificing everything for. He says, it's the deposit of faith. And then he says to Timothy, and you have it, right? You're not talking about something you want to get. You're talking about something that Timothy has. But he says, if you're going to keep it, then you have to guard it. All right, and so think about this. We guard the things we already have, and we guard the things that are precious to us. And so as we, as we close out this letter from Paul, let's reflect on, I mean, this is a really simple sermon. How can we do that? How can we obey Paul's closing words here? How can we, as individuals, as families, and as a church, guard the deposit of faith that God has given to us? And so I want to answer that question on the small scale, personally, in our own hearts. How can we do that? And then I want us to move outward. Think of this in terms of concentric circles. Your first concentric circle on the, on the furthest on the inside is you. You have a responsibility for yourself. That's the first point. Then the second is in terms of your, your family, whatever your family unit is, those that you have responsibility for. And then finally, I want us to close by reflecting on what it means to guard the context in the context of the church as we get bigger, as the circle gets wider. And so those three points today are that we guard the deposit in our own soul, in our own home, and in our own church. Um, So today's going to be a little bit of a grab bag, actually. It's going to be less involved with going word for word through what Paul says here and more asking the question, how can we do what he says? How can we do what Paul says? So let's start at the most fundamental level, the level at which each of us have no choice but to live, the personal level, the personal level of our own accountability before God. Um, Because first, we as Christians should guard the deposit of faith in our own soul. Um, Personal responsibility has fallen on hard times in Western society. Uh, It seems more than ever we are aware of the ways that we're all connected to each other and we're aware of the ways that we're connected to our own past. We're aware of the influences, things that have happened to us have, have been on who we are now. We realize that, that the way that we were raised, the things that we learned when we were young end up giving fruition in our lives as we get older. So in many ways, the person we are today is impacted by the things that we experienced before. We know that genetics has something to do with the person we are. We know that our upbringing has something to do with who we are. But we have entered into a time in our society where a lot of times those things are not seen as simply factors in who we are, but they are actually to blame for who we are. And therefore, we're not really even accountable for who we are. And so we're not responsible for what we do, and we're not responsible for who we are. We're always looking for some prior condition that explains why we are. The answer usually in terms of Western society is not, I did it. I'm accountable, I'm responsible, I'm the one who did it. And yet, when you look in Scripture, one of the things you find, God knows all of those factors that go into making us who we are, and yet, at the end of the day, God does come to us personally, and He, even those factors do not alleviate us of our own personal responsibility 
each of us must stand before the Lord and answer for ourselves how we lived and what we did. And those factors in our lives will not be shields against God and his judgment. Um, you see this, this idea of personal responsibility uh, highlighted in Ezekiel 18.4. Ezekiel 18.4 reminds us that all souls belong to God and the soul who sins will die. So there are, are, there are consequences that we face as we sin, right? We, we die for our own sin, not someone else's sin. We are responsible for our sin regardless of our background, regardless of the difficulties in which we grew up. But we have another responsibility. We have the responsibility to respond to God's grace by repenting. So if you were to look a little further in Ezekiel 18, and you were to look at verse 21, God says these words. He says, If a wicked person turns away from his sins that he has committed, and keeps all my statutes, and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, and he shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. And so you see at once that, that we have a personal responsibility for the decisions we make. We're responsible for our sins as an individual, but we're also responsible to repent, to come before the Lord, to avail ourselves of his grace, to cry out to, to Jesus to rescue us. We have a personal responsibility to repent. No one else can repent for you. We have to repent of our own sin. We have to repent of our own deeds. We have to repent of our own wrongs, and we have to individually flee to Jesus as our shelter. See, we're all called to live before the face of God. So on the day of judgment, I will answer for my sins, not yours, and you will answer for your sins, not mine. You should be grateful for that. Right? Jesus, Jesus will look at each person individually, and he will either say, I knew you or I never knew you. There's, there's this intensely personal dimension to salvation and to the call of the Christian life that we have to begin with and we have to appreciate most fundamentally as we're moving outward and we're thinking about the responsibility, other responsibilities that we have. So the question is, let's say you're on board. Let's say, okay, I get it. There is this personal dimension, but how am I supposed to guard the deposit in my own soul? Let me mention some basics, things that we find in Scripture by the way, you're going to start seeing the same string on this guitar get plucked, so get ready. The first thing I want to mention is simple, it's very fundamental, and it's this. Attend worship. You guard the deposit of your own soul by attending worship. Hebrews 10.25 says we should not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. The author of Hebrews mentions that part of the reason for this is that God uses the public gathering of God's people to prompt us to what? Here's the language he uses. He says, God uses the public gathering to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So part of the way that you hold fast to the confession of, of the hope of God is by gathering and worshiping together. That's one of the ways that you hold fast, right? And, and part of the reason is that God has given us three specific ways. He's given more than three, but he's given us three specific ways that he intends for us to be built up in the faith. And those three things are the word and the sacraments and prayer. All of these things are meant to be a part of public worship. So, so here's what happens. Not only does the scripture encourage you to come to worship, 
but also you have the encouragement of God's people here. So when you come, you see all these beautiful, shining faces, these people who love the Lord together. And part of what happens is they're here to encourage you. They're here to help you to what? Guard the deposit. Guard the thing that God has has started in your life, but you have the, the regular, ordinary means of grace as well when you come to the word to, to the public worship. And so if a church is being faithful, here's what happens. You're going to get those things there. You're going to get those things that God has designed to enrich your soul and build you up so that the deposit in your own heart and in your life is guarded. So here's the deal. Public worship is just this powerful one, two, one, two, three punch, if that's so that's a thing. It's this one-two punch of everything you need most all in one concentrated place. Now, now, there are other personal disciplines that you can have in your life, but think about it. By design, God has basically said, I want public worship to be the thing that if you do nothing else, you go there and you get what you need for your soul, right? Now, there are other things you can do as well. I, I mentioned prayer before. One one way to guard the deposit of faith is to pray for your own soul. You find scriptural examples of this, of people praying for their own soul. It sounds selfish. It's not selfish. It's, it's what God wants you to do. Um, there are, the Psalms are basically, what, 150 chapters of people praying for their own souls. <laughs> right? It's, uh, think of this. Oh, Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Save us, we pray, oh, Lord. Right? So our prayer is, is us crying to God for help. Which of us is sufficient for these things? Which of us can preserve our own soul? Which of us has the strength within us to actually carry ourselves along and, and persevere to the very end without the Holy Spirit helping us? We need to follow the example of the psalmist. We need to pray for our own souls. We need to be crying out to God for him to bless our hearts so that we can persevere. Uh, another part of guarding the deposit, privately make sure that you are personally taking shelter in Jesus. Personally taking shelter in Jesus. You know, it is one thing to go to church. Uh, you can do it externally. You can do it outwardly. Um, it's one thing to externally do everything that's ex- expected of us, right? If our, if our parents say it's time to go to church, then it's one thing to actually go to church, right? Uh, we can even... Uh, pray in private, we can even kneel, we can even pray, and yet our heart's not in it, and we don't particularly care for what we're actually doing, right? So, in other words, we can act and we can uh, think that a real Christian is supposed to act, and, and yet not actually rest in Jesus. We can actually put on the act, we can put on the show without resting in Christ, and, and that's because faith in Jesus is not a doing Faith in Jesus is not a doing, it is a resting. And resting means stopping. It means to stop laboring. It means to stop carrying ourselves along. It means to stop focusing on us and what we've done and what our record is and all the things that we've, we've done for other people. Resting means resting, <laughs> right? It's the opposite of working. It's the opposite of, of laboring so that we can have peace with God. And, and, and so if we won't stop toiling and if we won't let Jesus be the basis of our rest, then that isn't faith in Christ. No one else can trust in Jesus for you. No one else can be sorry for your sins. No one else can repent for you. You have to rest in him 
and receive Jesus for yourself. So I want to say a word to the children in the room. Uh, children, your parents bring you to church. They love you. And they brought you to church. They brought you to church today. They teach you the Bible. Have you believed in Jesus for yourself? Um, God calls you personally to re repent of your sin. And he calls you to actually receive and rest in Jesus. How do you guard the deposit of the, of your own, in your own personal life? By enjoying the means of grace, right? God has told you that you need to hear his word. Have you taken hold of Jesus for yourself? And I don't say that just to the children. I say that to the adults as well. You have a responsibility as well. Christian, guard the deposit of faith in your own heart. Trust in Jesus for yourself. Second, though, I want to go a little bigger than just us. Let's say... Let's say you're guarding the deposit of faith in your own life. Let's say you're guarding the deposit of faith in your own soul. You are, you are availing yourself of what God has given you, and yet you know that you have other people in your life that you are responsible for. You have a household. You have a family. Well, the second thing is that we as Christians should guard the deposit of faith in our homes. So here's what happens in Scripture. When God is preparing Israel to enter the land of Canaan, and in the process of that, he makes sure to tell parents that they have a responsibility. And it's a heavy responsibility that they as parents carry. He says, you have a responsibility toward your little ones. So listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 6.5. He says, you might remember, recognize this first part. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. We're familiar with that. But then listen to what he continues to say. He says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you, when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Think of the picture here that God is painting for families, right? He knows that they're going into a land where they might forget these things, and he is, he is working to impress upon them. How do you avoid forgetting what God has done? And so the picture that he, that he draws for them and that he really commands for them is of a family life where the law and the truths and the, the tales of God's grace are taught and reinforced within the family. And so parents talking with their kids about God all the time, um, saying everything they know, regaling them with tales of God's faithfulness to them. And, and, and so parents have this weighty responsibility to make sure that their children don't grow up neglecting or forgetting all these things that God has done. That is the job that God gives them to guard the, the positive faith for the home. But what does that look like? Let me give you some examples. For starters, it means reading scripture together as a family. Um, how do we teach our kids about God's truth? How do we do all the things that the Deuteronomy says, right? How do we diligently teach our children? How do we, how do we tell them all of these things so that they're surrounded by them all the time. Well, we're intentionally reading the scripture together, right? Uh, ideally, we have 
a set time where we know we're going to read scripture so that they know why it's important. Um, We need to talk about it all the time, according to the text, right? It needs to be on our lips all the time when we're going from one place to another. That's really hard for me, by the way. I love listening to podcasts and music, and it's easier when you're traveling to, to fill the car with noise. And yet, what does God say? He says, when you're going from one place to another... It looks like they did a lot of commuting back then, too, right? It feels like all I do is commute. Uh, They're they're saying, fill the car with conversation about the things of God. Um, Parents, make sure to answer your children's questions about the Bible. Talk about the Bible. Be Bible people. Um, Don't be afraid of hard questions. When your kids ask questions that you don't know the answer to, you just tell them, that's a really good question that I don't know the answer to. But now you've given me something really important that I can spend my time on. And you go and research it, and then you come back once you find an answer. If you don't know an answer, ask me. And if I don't know the answer, tell your kid that they're really smart. (laughs) But don't be afraid to model answer-seeking for your kids. Let your kids see that, yeah, you care what the Bible says too. When they ask questions, work to come up with an answer together. Seek to find it. Here's another thing. Pray with your family. Pray with your family. You know, sharing prayer requests, remembering people in your family, people in your city, people in your church who need God's grace, and then lifting them up together before the Lord. Thinking of people who need God's help. Um, Parents, you're to model prayers for your kids. Your kids will learn how to pray from you. One of the most impactful things my father ever did was praying in front of me And my father prayed passionately. I think my father prayed a little too passionately. (laughs) But he prayed passionately. He, He sought the Lord. And he showed me that he cared about God and seeing his face. And I remember in later life that I I remember his prayers. And I remember the seriousness of his prayers. And they stayed with me. And your children will remember that prayer was important to you as a parent. They may not remember what you prayed for, but they will remember that you went to the Lord. And they'll remember that you didn't hide it from them. And they'll remember that you cared enough that you wanted them to do the same thing in their own lives. They will remember that. They may not remember your prayers. They may not remember how clumsy your prayers are. I don't know why, but after 8 or 9 p.m., my prayers are clumsy and... Sometimes they're even lazy, and I pray that God, in his grace, still blesses my children with our prayers, even though they can be sleepy and bleary-eyed and, yes, a little lazy in the evenings. But here's something else that you can do. You can not just pray with your family, but you can privately pray for your family. You can privately pray for your family. In other words, not only praying with them when you're together, but praying for them when they aren't around to hear it. Right? When you are by yourself, you're thinking of your family. You don't need an audience other than God when you pray. Right? Uh, you know, if you think about complicated things in life that you need a series of items in order to accomplish or do, prayer is great because you don't need anything. You can have nothing and you can pray. And so you don't need your children there in order to pray. In fact, if you need your children there in order to pray, your own prayer life needs work. Um, But praying for your family is biblical. Praying for your children is is biblical. Think of the book of Job. In the book of Job, when the narrator wants us to know how righteous Job is, what does he tell us about Job? He tells us that he would rise up early 
and he would offer burnt offerings for his children. So his children and their sins were on his heart and on his mind. And, and the reason, the text tells us, the reason Job was concerned for their souls, he says, it says, he said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. So here Job is, he's, he's not with them. He hasn't seen what they've done exactly, but he loves his children enough that he goes before the Lord and he prays and he offers sacrifices. This is back when you offered sacrifices. He offered sacrifices to God on behalf of his children. And then the text tells us, thus Job did continually. So this is a guy who is praying for his family. He is a picture of somebody who's, he's not praying with them. He's not there with them and praying for them. He is separate from them and he's going before God alone personally and he's praying for his children. Um, he guarded the deposit that had been entrusted to him, right? Specifically in his family. Now I want to say something else and that's, it's, it's for the kids again. Um, children, this is not just for parents, uh, guarding the deposit in your family by praying for your family is not just something that God tells your parents to do. You should pray as well. If you are a child and you have a mind and you can think, then you can pray and you can talk to God. What do you pray for? You pray for your siblings. You pray for your, your, your siblings, especially if you have trouble getting along with them. Now, I know that's not the case with any kids in this church, but... If you had siblings that you were having trouble getting along with, you should pray for them. It's really hard to be mad at people that you pray for. Uh, some of the people that you get the most frustrated in life with, that God's solution for helping that is actually to pray. So what do you do? You pray for your siblings. You pray for your parents. You pray for your mom and dad. You may not know it, but your mom and dad sometimes have their own spiritual struggles. And if you pray for them, you're helping them because you're taking them before the Lord. Um, you pray for, for your own spiritual strength. You ask God to give you strength. Um, praying for your family is an act of remembering that your family is under God's care, ultimately. And it's a way of yielding them up before the Lord so that you're, it's, like, it's like they're not mine, oh God. This isn't my family. This is your family, God. Would you care for your family? Um, it's also a way of protecting us from making an idol of our household and making an idol of our children. Because what are you doing? You're lifting them up to God and you're remembering that our God cares for us and he's the one that, takes to, that, that cares for our little ones and cares for our parents and cares for our siblings. So praying for your family is a tangible way to remember they are in God's care, not ultimately in your care. Let me mention one other thing you can do to guard the deposit in your household and get ready. Here comes the string. I'm going to pluck it again. Bring your family to public worship. Um, parents, this is like a bare minimum of your calling. Um, if you do nothing else, at least bring your children to public worship. Um, you, we mentioned that they individually need to hear the word so that they can respond to these things. Um, there are some parents, they mistakenly believe, I shouldn't bring my children to worship. They think that Real parenting means only bringing them to church if they ask to come or if they, they want to come. Um, parents think, now I'm talking about really little kids. I'm not necessarily talking about how to parent through the tricky teenage years. Um, but they think that if they bring their children, but their children aren't interested, that they're going to do harm to their children. Um, we once had a close friend who stopped going to church. And they stopped taking their kids to church. 
And when we asked them why, they said, well, our kids just weren't feeling it. And the parents were letting the, the kids, like under the age of 10, decide for themselves what they wanted to do. Here's the problem. Children are not always wise. And I said not always. So all you kids in here, you guys are great. Children are not always wise. They don't always know what they need. And without instruction, they won't be wise at all. They won't know anything. They won't be wise. They, they won't know what they need. And so we as parents, talking to parents now, we as parents have a duty to teach and care for them because God knows that they need it. We're supposed to teach and train them for what they need to know. It's why we send them to school or it's why we homeschool them, right? It's because they need to be trained up in it. Let's just put it this way. If you put my children in charge of deciding what they would eat, their whole life would just be cinnamon toast crunch. And you'd be like, why do the Parker kids look like they're falling apart? <laughs> wow. Has anyone let them out in the light recently? Right? Um, children would never eat anything healthy if we left it completely up to them. They can be self-destructive if left to themselves. Um, parents, some parents say they don't want to bring their children to church because they, don't, they want to let their children decide for themselves what they will believe and whether they will believe. And, and my answer to that is parents who bring their children to church think the same thing. We think the same thing. They should decide for themselves what they will believe. But being in church doesn't automatically mean you make a child believe. Um, children who grew up learning the gospel, seeing the gospel lived out in their home, uh, learning to live and pray and sing and live a life that's centered around God, when they get older, they, they can always make a choice on their own when they get older. And in fact, they have to make a choice when they get older, right? We teach. We don't brainwash. Um, I was taught when I was a kid that I should believe and love the gospel. I certainly wasn't brainwashed. If I was brainwashed, my parents did a bad job of brainwashing me um, because I didn't believe. I didn't believe for years, right? They, <coughs> they took me to the church, and they, they told me they wanted me to believe. They taught me that God is real, and then I, I rebelled. And it was years later I eventually came to believe that it was all true, but it was on, on my own terms. Um, God rescued me when I was older. So here's the problem. If we, if we don't set Jesus before them at all, if we don't help them to know the scriptures, if we don't teach them the faith, then we haven't done our part in helping them to understand what faith in Christ is. And when they get older, they may end up rejecting Christianity, but it may be an inaccurate version of Christianity that is more informed by the world than it is of the, by the Bible. Um, a few years ago, some friends and I went to a, a community college in Mississippi. We were walking around the, the campus. We were talking to students at the, in the supposed Bible Belt, right? You think of all the places in the world where you're going to run into a bunch of believers just left and right. It's the Bible Belt, right? I was scandalized by how little the students at the school knew about the Bible, knew about Jesus. Um, they weren't Christians, but in this weird sense, they also didn't know what they weren't, right? They didn't know when you say, I'm not a Christian, you would think that they know what that means. But if they don't know what Christianity is, then they don't know what it is they're not. They don't even understand Christianity to reject it. And this is in the Bible Belt, right? And they had not been taught Christ, but they had rejected Christ. 
right? Or at least they had rejected some version of him. So here's what I want to put an exclamation point on. If your children grow up not believing, that is their decision. If your children grow up without understanding the teaching of Scripture or understanding who Jesus is, that was your decision. You understand? If they grow up not believing, that is their decision. If they don't understand Christianity, that is your decision. So many people in our world have rejected Jesus, but they know so little of him because their parents didn't even try. They wanted to give them a choice. And so by doing that, in a sense, they made the choice. My child will not even understand Christianity. And we have a generation of young people who barely know anything about the Christian faith because their parents failed to even do the bare minimum to guard the deposit of faith in the home. Part of guarding the deposit of faith in our home is doing what we know our kids need most, even if they don't recognize it right now. And so what do we do? We read the scripture. We, we hear from God together. We pray together. We attend worship together. Parents, bring your children. By the way, there's a word here for kids as well. I, I like, I'm, this is a good sermon for, with kid application. If you wanted a kid sermon today... This is like, this is for you guys. Children, you can actually help your parents do what God says here. Um, you can do this. You can help your parents by getting ready and not being difficult on Sunday mornings, just as one example. Um, you can do it by not complaining about coming to church. Now, I know none of you would complain about coming to church, um, but you can do it without complaining. Um, I really genuinely believe that the enemy has used the complaints of children to keep some adults away from the house of God. Um, it's, not that, it's not that that's the sole reason a parent would stay away, but it's another piece of friction that parents say, I don't want to deal with that, and so they don't come. And what happens? They keep them away from the means of grace. And kids, there's something else you can do to guard the deposit of faith in your home. You can actually encourage your parents to take you to church, even if they feel tired. Um, you may find this hard to believe. Sometimes even parents can get tired. Very hard to believe. Parents can get tired, and they need their kids to prod them to come to worship sometimes. I know of a family that began coming to Evergreen when I first got here because the son in the household was very insistent they should be coming to church. And then, and then they, they started coming. And since then, they moved out of state. Uh, I got a lovely I got a lovely letter from them a couple of months ago, and they talked about the fact that Evergreen changed their life and their family's life, um, and it was because of the prodding of the son, saying, "Mom, Dad, take me to church, take me to church." So, um, kids, you can help your parents. You can be a spiritual blessing to your family. You can bless your parents. Uh, you can steal the friction away from Sunday mornings. And your family will be blessed because of it. It's one of the ways that you help guard the deposit of the faith. It's one of the ways you help obey exactly what Tim, Paul is telling Timothy about here. Now, third, we as Christians should guard the deposit of faith in the church. So notice what we're doing. We're going bigger, right, personal, family, church. How can we do this in the church? You know, Paul really has the church as a whole in mind here, right? For, for Paul... Timothy guards the deposit, but he doesn't just do it for his own sake. He does it for this church. He does it for the church in Ephesus where he's ministering right now. 
Um, and so he's thinking about this church, not just Timothy individually. How can we as Christians guard the deposit of faith in our church? My answer is we guard the deposit by building up our local church. We do it by building up the local church. We do this in a few ways. First, get ready. We do it by attending worship. <laughs> by the way, our attendance has been great. I'm not saying this because there's anybody that really needs to hear this. But we always need to hear it, right? We need to hear even the things that we're already doing. We need to be encouraged by God's word, by what he says that we're already doing. Sometimes Timothy, or sometimes Paul in his letters will say, uh, I'm praying for God that you do this. And then he says, but I know you're already doing it. So there's nothing wrong with redundancy in ministering and ministry and being spoken to by God's word. But we do this by attending worship. Here's what I want to say. Attending worship builds up other believers, not just us. So when I'm talking about going outward in the concentric circle, you going to worship is a blessing to that larger group. It's a blessing to the church. Um, think about the wording again of Hebrews 10.24, right? The author doesn't just say that each of us have a personal responsibility to come to worship. He actually starts off the passage by saying this. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. So sometimes we hear not neglecting to meet together, and we think, oh, the preacher's trying to guilt me again. Either we think that. Or, or we think, well, this is about me, right? He's saying we can't be in the habit of, uh, uh, of neglecting to meet together because I need that spiritually. That's actually not the point he's making in the passage. The, the point of the passage is actually about everybody else there, not you. Because he says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. So it's actually about everybody else there, not you. And so, so a big emphasis of our meeting together as God's people is, is that we're, doing, we're not doing this for us. We're doing this for them. Like, just look around you, and that's actually, in part, who you're doing this for. Now, you're really doing it for God. But he's saying that by coming here, you're stirring up everybody around you to love and good works. So we're doing this for others. We're doing this to stir them to love and good works. And I, I think we miss this. We think I'll come to church, but what's in it for me? What will I get out of church today? Now, I, ho I hope we don't think that way. I think we do on some level instinctively. Maybe deep down, we, we sometimes think that way. And I think a partial answer is, even if we personally got nothing out of church Coming to worship is our way of also blessing others. I can't explain it. I, I can't give a rational explanation for it. But here's the thing. Seeing each of you here each week, God uses that to help me walk with him. I can't give a, again, like I can't scientifically explain it. But when I see you all, it strengthens me. And then I go into the next week thinking about you. And, and I think that that's not just because I'm the pastor. I think it's because I'm just a part of this church. And I think that each of you could testify the same thing, that when you have met with other believers and you've remembered that you're not alone in this world, there is something about that that you're able to go out and face the world for another week. Um, God uses that to stir us up to love and good works. That's God's design. 
You can also guard the deposit of faith by praying for your church family. I told you, this is a guitar with only like three strings on it. Um, Paul talks frequently about how he would pray for the churches that he was a part of. He says, I pray for this church. He prays for the Colossians without ceasing. He said that he always prayed for the Thessalonians. Um, James tell his, tells his readers, pray for one another. He said, pray for the other members of the church. Pray for one another. In other words, guard the deposit of faith by prayer. Not just by praying for your church family, but praying with your church family, right? When you hear a need, when you hear a concern, guard the deposit of this person's faith by praying immediately uh, directly for this person when they tell you about it. Um, I don't know if all of you have a direct line to me, but when I get text messages from people that says, hey, I need prayer, I stop what I'm doing and I pray right now. And I do that for two reasons. One is I don't want to forget. (laughs) Text messages... The notifications go away, and you forget sometimes. So you pray right then and there. But the other reason is this person needs prayer, and they bother to reach out. And so if you get a prayer request from somebody, pray right then and there. Even if you're in a public place, it doesn't matter. Um, But pray. Um, Resist the urge to pray later. If you're standing with someone, and they tell you something that's worrisome in their life or difficult in their life, just pray for them right there on the spot while they're on the phone with you or, or while you're standing there. Um, when you do that, guess what you're doing? You're helping to guard the deposit of the faith in your church. You can guard the deposit in your church by praying for church officers. Um, Paul asked the Romans to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. So, so there is biblical foundations. Besides the fact that it completely makes sense to pray, pray for church officers, you see it modeled by Paul. He's saying, pray for me. Pray for me. He, he asked Philemon to pray for his safe arrival. Um, Paul was a man who was not self-sufficient. Paul was somebody, he was a church officer, but guess what? He needed the prayers of others, and he asked for them. He asked for prayers whenever he could get them. The elders and deacons of this church need your prayer as well. You can guard the deposit of the faith by praying for your church officers. Pray that we'll be faithful. Pray that we'll be wise. Pray that we'll be caring. Pray that we will remember people. Pray that folks won't fall through the cracks with us. Pray that we would actually minister to the whole body. There are so many things you could pray for, for the church officers. Uh, We're doing church officer training right now. We're going to meet this afternoon. Pray for us. You can guard the deposit of faith in the church by teaching those who are younger in the faith You know, this is just part of the church vows uh, that we take as members when a child is baptized, right? When a child is baptized in this church, what do we do? We as a church promise to help this family raise this baptized child up in the faith, right? We have to teach these things even if they feel repetitive. Um, Remember what happens in churches. What happens in churches is not they're preaching the gospel, they're preaching the gospel, and then one day they go, gospel, ew, we're going to become a social club. That's not the plan. That's not the way that it works. First, the gospel is taught. Then the gospel is assumed. Then it is neglected. Then it is lost. Right? And all the while, in those last steps, they, are, they think they're still assuming the gospel. Right? But they've stopped teaching it. And so we need to make sure we are affirmatively teaching the gospel and not merely assuming it. 
So let's make it a priority to not just teach our own children in our own families, but also the children of the church. If you think it's important for your children to be taught the Bible and taught the gospel, guess what? Every other child in the church needs the same thing. And sometimes parents get weary and they need their church family to come in and help them, especially in their weariness. So let's invest ourselves in the future generation and let's do that by guarding the deposit of faith in the church. Did you notice, and I'm sure you did because I make, made fun of myself, did you notice that all three of these points we talked about included many of the same practices, right? We talked about coming to worship in all three of those circles. Um, we talked about reading the word in all of those. We talked about prayer in all of those. Attending worship with your church family has these outward ripples. It, it has an impact on your own soul. It has an impact on your family, and it has an impact on your church as a whole when you come, right? And so coming to church is for you, but it's not just for you. Um, I have noticed the fellowship here at Evergreen is just sweeter, and, and there's just this amazing sense of love and appreciation when we're all here. We spent two years without seeing many in this church. And every one of you that was gone during that season, or at least part of that season, you were genuinely missed, and your church was impoverished by your absence. And, and this is true of all of you. Whenever you aren't in church, your church family is missing you. Um, this is not a guilt trip. It's, it's a fact. You can say things that are true without a, being intended to be a guilt trip. But see, it's not about you or me. It's about us. It's about your family. It's about your church. Same thing goes for prayer, right? We should each be praying privately, but those prayers need to ripple outward. We need to be praying with our family as well because that has a way of changing and transforming our family and the things we care about and the things that we prioritize, the things that we're teaching our children that we care about. Corporate prayer in the church, what does it do? It forms us into a church that is dependent on the Lord and not ourselves and not on our own strength. If you've ever been to a prayerless church, it is a very sad thing. I went to a prayerless church once. They didn't put it on the sign out front. It just said congregational church. And I thought, well, it's right across the street from my house. Surely this will be a fine place to at least try out. And I went in there. They didn't have a sermon. He quoted Robert Frost. Two roads diverged in a wood. And then, uh, and then he just wrapped things up and said, have a good day, folks. There was no prayer. It was bizarre if i hadn't seen it i wouldn't have believed it i didn't know they made prayerless churches but they do it can happen i'm guessing when that church first started they prayed and then one day they decided this isn't doing anything for us we could shorten the service by removing these prayers and so they just shortened the service you know, this, this letter from Paul ends with these two verses where he's really summarizing the letter up. He's really giving us the summary of what this whole letter has been about. What has he cared about this whole letter? He's, he's going to Timothy and he's saying, answer these false, church, these false teachers, Timothy. You need to, to create a healthy church environment where God's word is proclaimed and Christ is exalted. How can you actively do that? He says, make it your mission to take hold of Jesus yourself, Timothy, and make sure the families in this church are taking hold of Christ and make sure 
by God's grace that the church itself is actually taking hold of Christ. And so Timothy has been taught by Paul from beginning to end that Jesus is the beginning and middle and end of the Christian life. He is just drilling that into Timothy's head. He's been drilling it into our heads, right? So, so our business is to never lose sight of that. And as we do that, we will guard the deposit of faith. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it is easy for us to lose sight of the mission that you give to your people. We start thinking of ourselves. We start thinking about those around us. We start thinking about anything and everything, and yet we can easily lose sight of you. Would you equip our hearts so that we treasure and rejoice in Christ? Would you give us your spirit so that he would grant us the vitality needed to live the Christian life so that we guard the deposit that you've given to us? We ask it in Jesus' name.